good to be back with you. Um, again, just, uh, just a, a moment of privilege because I have your attention. I just want to thank everybody who made two Sundays without us happen. Um, just made me realize how unneeded I really am. Um, so that's a good place to be. Um, church happened twice without the pastor here, and everybody's back today, and so that's good. So thank you for everybody. You know who you are, who helped us make that happen through all the diversity and adversity that came our way. Just really uh, grateful for you. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to uh, the New Testament, to the, the letter to the Ephesians. We're starting a, a brand new sermon series this week. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you today, that's okay. We'll have the words on the screen for you today. But let me, let me just uh, encourage you to consider bringing a Bible um, with you for the next, uh, well, forever. Um, <laughs> we believe in the Bible here. And uh, we're going to be preaching through the entire book of Ephesians, the letter of book of Ephesians. And I'm going to be telling you some almost unbelievably remarkable things. And they're going to be so good that you're not going to believe me. And so I would like to encourage that you have a Bible open on your lap so you can see that I'm not making this stuff up. There's some really good stuff that we're about to dive into uh, as we spend the next several weeks maybe even months, together uh, working through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we have one that you can take today for free. Uh, you, can, you can even grab one now. They're out on the Next Steps table. It's from the version that I read and preach from, which is the English Standard Version. So whether you grab one now or on your way out today, those are free for the taking. So if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, uh, we would love to, to give you one of those. Today we're going to be Looking at Ephesians, um, I mentioned that we were in Phoenix for a wedding, uh, for my brother's wedding. And I love weddings. I'm not sure. I've met, I haven't met many people that don't really like weddings. Weddings in general are broadly accepted by culture. They're pretty good times. But one of the, the, the my favorite part about weddings is, I think, maybe everyone's favorite part, but mine's with a twist, is when the bride adorns the aisle, everyone stands and faces the bride and, and watches the, the bride coming down the aisle. You're with me? Your last wedding? You, you know what this looks like. My favorite part about weddings is, is the bride coming down the aisle, but with a twist, I don't actually watch the bride. I actually watch the groom. If you've never done that, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So, so the groom is either a crier, which my brother was a crier, <laughs> or he's a fidgety, shaky kind of guy. There's those, the nervous guys. What am I getting into? But the groom always shows expressions towards his bride. One of the beautiful things I love about that is that's the actual picture that the Bible gives us of God's love towards his people, the church. At the wedding, I got, had the privilege of performing the ceremony for my brother as, as my brother was weeping as his bride came down to, to break the tension for just a moment. I leaned over into his ear Yes, I did this. I leaned over into his ear and I said, Brett, the way you feel about Sarah right now is the way Jesus feels about his church. And that is actually the motif of Ephesians that I'm going to play on throughout this series is that, that we, the church, God's people, are his bride. That the great storyline of the Bible is God pursuing his people in the midst of their promiscuity in the midst of their rebellion. And ultimately and finally, this story will, will end at a wedding altar where God will marry his bride, his church. 
And so today we are going to begin looking at Ephesians. And before we dive in, let's just get a little housekeeping out of the way, a little bit of context here. I, I don't want to, to bore you, but we do need some, to know some things about this letter before we dive into it. And, and that's the first thing is that it, it is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Ephesus. And in fact, most people believe that this was a letter that was written to many churches. It was a circular letter. In other words, it wasn't just written to one congregation dealing with a specific problem, which, which is the case in many of the New Testament letters. For instance, Corinthians, if you know the history of the Corinthian church, they had a lot of issues. Uh, the, 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 the letter to the Ephesians is not that type of letter. It's a general letter. It was written, again, to the church at Ephesus, which Paul, the apostle who wrote it, we'll talk about him in a little bit, wrote, uh, planted that church. He started that church. It was in a, in a, in a port city. It was, in a, it was right outside of a river. It was a, a, a city of about 250,000 people. And it was modern-day Turkey is the area. It's a coastal city where it is. And it was a big, major melting pot for religion, as are most cities. There was just a, a melting pot of different worldviews and beliefs and that's the context to which this letter is written. The letter is written to ordinary Christians living ordinary lives, but that have been changed by an extraordinary message. A message that has hope through a historical event of God coming into their story in the person and work of Christ. This letter was written for people that were longing for love, people that were confused and conflicted, people that were broken and dissatisfied in their work and in their relationships. In other words, it was written to people just like you and written to people just like me. So let's look at, today we're going to read just the first two verses. I promise we'll go faster through this letter, but the first two verses have enough for us to consider this morning. So let's give our attention to God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, reading down through verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this, the word of our Lord, will stand forever. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come now um, with those words still resonating in our hearts that we need you. Lord, we need you every hour every moment, and we certainly need you now. Without your help, by your spirit, we cannot understand your word. We are blind, we are deaf, we are hard-hearted, and so, Lord, we need you to come. Lord, I pray that you would move me aside and that you would speak to your people through your word, all for your own glory and for their good. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our lives are completely composed of building our identity, answering the question, who am I? Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, I grew up on the east side of town, and, and I kind of grew up in a sports world. I grew up playing baseball. I, I always have, I always did, but I always told myself I was going to be something different than a baseball player. Well, one striking uh, memory that I have is my freshman year of high school trying out for the basketball team. Manzano Monarchs, I think there's a Monarch or two in here, go Monarchs. I tried out for the freshman basketball team. I went in with such high hopes. Now listen, 
I pretty much was this height, probably even shorter at that point, but I had high hopes of being the star point guard for the Manzano Monarchs. I, my parents had just encouraged me and bolstered me up that I was a good basketball player. In fact, I remember my grandfather from back east had come in town during that week, and he was there for the week-long tryouts, and he had told me I was the best player on the court. And needless to say, I did not make the team. I was crushed. I, I had the, the, the carpet pulled out from under me. I would never be the basketball player that I always thought I was going to be. That was just one of many instances of me trying to build my identity on something that I was never meant to be. Uh, I think as adults, we sometimes think, oh, yeah, I remember those, those youth days. I remember those youth-filled days of just trying to figure out who I was. Oh, that was so silly when I went through that goth stage or when I went through that particular country music stage or whatever it was as, 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 as kids. But listen, as adults, we don't stop doing it. We just become more sophisticated at it. We are constantly trying to answer the question, who am I? I. Let me see if any of these speak to you as a source of identity that you look for. Family. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son. I'm a mother. I'm a daughter. I'm a grandmother. I'm a grandparent. I'm a friend. You know, family relationships, that, that, that marks our identity. How about just things that we do, activities? Men, what's the first question you ask when you go, let's say, let's say we're at a social gathering and you don't know anybody, you go, you go into this group of men and you're like, all right, I'm getting in here. What's the first question we always ask? What do you do? Right? It's, what do you do? So we always associate ourselves with our activities, you know? I'm a realtor, I'm an accountant, I'm a golfer, I'm a runner, you know, whatever it is, we, we, we identify ourselves with activity. How about associations? We, we always identify ourselves with associations. I'm a Lobo, I'm an Aggie, you know, I'm red chili, I'm green chili. You know, we, we do all these things. I'm Presbyterian, I'm not Presbyterian. Now, all these different indicators and associations, we're building our identity, we build our identity on our appearance, what clothes we wear, what cars we drive, what zip code we're in. You know, we build our appearance on our physical stature. You know, I, I crossfit five days a week. You know, I, I eat non-GMO foods and no MSG and PBF and all, I don't know, what, all the acronyms. We build our identity on our appearance. We build our identity on our lifestyle. I'm homosexual, I'm straight, I'm Republican, I'm Democratic. You get the point. Our lives are constantly building our identity. Who am I? The big question that I want to ask and then hopefully answer from the passage today, the question is this, who do you think you are? It'll be answered in today's passage, and it's going to be answered throughout the, the letter to the Ephesians, but the question is, who do you think you are? I want to draw out three things from this passage to answer that question, and they are these. If you're a note taker, they should be up on the screen. First, I want to look at who you are is not defined by who you were. Second, I want to look at who you are depends on whose you are. And then thirdly, I want to look at who you are is a gift from God. So let's first consider who you are is not defined by who you were. Verse 1 very clearly and, and obviously shows us who wrote this letter. It says Paul. There's very little scholarship doubt in this. Uh, Paul, if you know anything about the New Testament, had a lot to do with it. 
In fact, 13 of Paul's letters are included in the New Testament. And so that's not necessarily everything he wrote, but he is the second most, as far as quantity concerned, uh, uh, included author in the New Testament, second to Luke. And so Paul was a towering figure in the early church. I mean, Paul was the momentum behind Christianity expanding actually to where we sit today. Paul planted churches in major cities in the Greco-Roman Empire, and he advanced the good news about Jesus through his work. I mean, Paul traveled thousands and thousands of miles. We, we can't even really estimate it over his decade-plus-long ministry of starting churches. I mean, he walked dusty roads. He climbed and trekked you know, treacherous paths. He was basically penniless. He was poor. He, he lived from station to station. And he planted this church in Ephesus. But at the risk of sounding like we're going to fall at Paul's feet and worship, and, and if you've been around you know, the, the, the church long, or, or particularly our flavor of churches, Reformed and Presbyterian, we love us some Paul. But let's, let's back up, let's back up and remind ourselves who Paul was. Paul, formerly known as Saul, was raised in a devoutly Jewish home. He was raised in a, he had a premier Jewish education. He, he lived at the synagogue. You know, he was the pastor's kid of all pastor's kid. He knew all the answers. In fact, at the ripe age of 12, he moved to Jerusalem to train under one of the best rabbis, Gamaliel. And so here Paul was being groomed for this life of religious education, and he was zealous. Now, Paul lived at the very same time that Jesus lived in his earthly ministry. So while Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, so was Paul. Paul had heard about Jesus. Paul knew about Jesus. Paul never encountered Jesus before his death. But however, we see that Paul, when Paul did meet Jesus, everything about him changed. You see that encounter actually in the book of Acts. It's a New Testament uh, book written by Luke. Acts chapter 9 records where Paul meets Jesus. It's on the road to Damascus. Now Paul at the time was rigorously and zealously killing Christians. He was a religious zealous who would literally take Christians who were worshiping Jesus, like you and I today, pull them out of their congregations to have them be stoned and killed. He believed Jesus was a false prophet. He did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was, namely the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the, the coming Messiah. And so that Paul, Saul, was walking on the road to Damascus to do what he had been doing all along, namely persecuting Christians and he meets Jesus. Jesus in his resurrected body in, in, a, in kind of one of those radical experiences appears to Saul and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul and the men around him are floored. They're brought to the dust of the path and he's changed. He's converted in that moment. Jesus changes his identity. Paul is called an apostle now in verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, an apostle, that, that word, it, it, it's, it has high connotations and it also has ordinary connotations. The word was, a, was not just a, a Bible word. It wasn't just a theology, kind of Jewish or even Christian thing. It was, it was a word that meant you were sent as a messenger with a message from the king. 
And so an apostle was someone who was given the authority of the one who sent him. And so Paul here identifies himself as an apostle. Now, I mean, you can just imagine the, the hearsay that went behind that. How can Paul be an apostle? Right? The, the text doesn't capitalize the A, but that's a capital A apostle, like one of the chosen apostles by Jesus himself. Paul has that kind of authority. He has the authority of Jesus, the king himself. I mean, just imagine the, the hearsay behind that, like, hey, Paul, the apostle's coming up. You, you heard about his past, right? You heard about what he used to be, how he used to kill Christians. Now he wants to come and tell us about Jesus what Paul does here, and he does it in other letters, is he defines his current identity not on his past, but on who God has called him to be. You need to know this, that, that who you are is not defined by who you were. We are so inclined and so prone to let our past define us. Decisions we've made, bad ones and good ones, you know, circumstances of our life, whether we've attributed them to or not, they define us. We let them define us. Paul didn't let them do that. Here's, here's what, you, our, our understanding of our past should not define us. I mean, here's a, here's, a, here's a free one for you. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, I just quoted Kelly Clarkson. Listen, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, Kelly Clarkson, has a decent perspective on our past, right? Like, yeah, we're all jamming Kelly Clarkson in our head. That's free for now. But that, that's really our, our view of the past is, yes, does it shape us? Absolutely. Does it change us? Sure, it does. But does it define us? No. Did it define Paul? No. Paul refused to let his past define him. It only shaped him. Do you believe that God can love anyone? And not only that he can just love them, but that, that he can then equip them to use anyone? Like the worst of the worst? Like I think most of us sitting here today acknowledge that, that maybe, maybe we were, but most of us have not been serial killers in the past, or none of us have a, 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 a deep scarred record in the public system. And so we think, okay, I'm not that bad of a person. But, but Paul was, and God used him. Do you believe God could use someone, even someone like you, with your past? Do you believe that? You, too, are an apostle, a lowercase apostle. Now, listen, none of your writings will ever be added to the Bible. The Bible's done. We're closed. We're done with that chapter. No addendums, okay? But you are sent with a message by the messenger, all of us, regardless of our past, who you are is not defined by who you were. Secondly, who you are depends on whose you are, looking primarily at the second half of verse 1. When you hear the word saint, what do you think of? I think some of us think of maybe just this, you know, kind of religious person with a, an aura, a cloud around them. Maybe you think of a particular figure like St. Francis or Mother Teresa. If you haven't been around the church, you probably think about the New Orleans saints. I mean, let's just be honest. You know, we're thinking about the saints. Um, do you know what it takes to become a certified saint in the, the Catholic church? <laughs> some of you know. Some of us have back, Catholic backgrounds. Well, let me, let me just refresh your memory. What it takes to be deemed a 
saint in the Catholic Church. There's 10 of them. I'll work quickly through them. First, you have to be a Catholic. That's kind of a obvious. You have to be in the Catholic Church, baptized in the Catholic Church. Second, you have to die. Yeah, you have to be dead. So there's, there's that. Secondly, you have to die. Thirdly, a local devotion has to grow up around your memory. So after, after you die, people have to start talking about how wonderful you were. Oh, maybe this guy was a saint, guy or girl. Maybe, maybe they were a saint. Okay. Then they begin to investigate your life. They begin to sniff around. Do they have any bad things about them that we don't know about? You know, this is kind of like the political digging up. Are we going to find out anything about you later down the road? They, they investigate your life. And after that, if you pass muster with that, you, your local bishop sends your case to the Vatican. Hey, we may have a saint on our hands here. Let's, let's, let's consider this one. Then after the Vatican receives uh, that receipt, they, people begin to pray for a miracle in your name. So some miracle has to be surrounding you in the prayer and the name, wh whatever that looks like. Then the Vatican investigates the miracle done in your name. Okay, it was valid. Wow, we really might have a saint on our hand. And then the Vatican declares you blessed. So you're almost there, but then the people have to pray for another miracle. So the second miracle has to happen. It has to go through the approval process. And then you finally become a saint. After all is said and done, you know, many, many years after you've died and gone, you become a saint. And then millions of dollars are spent on you to celebrate that you're a saint. That's, that's kind of in a nutshell my, my synopsis of what it means to become a saint. Do you know the way the Bible uses the word saint? Look at the end of verse 1. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Paul is writing to Christians at the church in Ephesus. He doesn't say to the saints who are elders and deacons. He doesn't say to the saints who have all of their theological I's dotted and T's crossed. He doesn't say to the saints who have been with us for 10 or more years and have a plaque in the courtyard somewhere. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, namely, to be a saint is to be a Christian, and to be a Christian is to be a saint. That's the declaration that Paul's making here of every Christian. So what's the kicker, you ask? Well, like, am I really a saint? Did Adam just call me a saint? Is, is the Bible calling me a saint? Well, you look at the end of verse 1, and you see it says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And you think, oh, there it is. Oh, it's for the faithful. Well, I'm, I'm not faithful, and you bow out. Okay, this is for the faithful people. Well, the tricky thing about an English translation, and, and your, your version of the Bible may have a, a little, like a, a little uh, footnote on it saying that there's different options. The word used here for faithful can actually be translated believing. And so all of the connotations that we have wrapped up, all the baggage that we think that comes with being a faithful Christian, the cream of the crop, the best of the best, is actually undermined because Paul uses the word believing. In other words, he says that being faithful is actually just an active form of believing. The word that Paul uses is the same word that's recorded in the Gospel of John. You remember St. Thomas, the, the doubter, Thomas the doubter, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he said, Jesus, I just can't believe this is real. This is too good to be true. Show me your, your hands. You know, show me this. And Jesus does. He puts his hands in the scars. And, 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 and Thomas responds by saying, I believe, now help my unbelief. And so in that moment of doubting belief that Thomas had, that very same word in its active form is used here of everyone who's 
being professed to be a Christian, uh, to be a saint. In other words, believing equals belonging. Belonging to what? Well, Paul uses at the very end of verse one, in Christ Jesus. Now, this for Paul, this is his his motto. This is Paul's thing. Listen, Paul uses the words, the phrase in Christ or in the beloved or in him some 216 times in all of his writings. It's used 36 times alone in Ephesus. In other words, it's important. If you want people to remember something, you just get repetitive, right? You just keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it. And that's Paul's thing. He continues to tell them what it means to be in Christ. Now, we're not going to dive into all of its fullness today. In fact, what he's going to do in, in the following verses that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks is show us exactly what is ours in Christ. But today, what you need to know is this, is that you belong to someone. You belong to either the first Adam or the second Adam. The way, the way God has established his created order is through representatives. You know, I often go back all the way to the Garden of Eden because it just tells us so much about how God has worked in bringing a redeemer for us. But in the Garden of Eden, what we see is the first representative, Adam, the first man who was placed in God's garden. He was given one rule and one rule only to follow. Namely, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Surely the day that you do, you will die. And so if you know the Bible line story, you know that, that he fell, that humanity fell, and he took all of humanity with him. There is only one who did not fall into sin with him, namely the second Adam. And so what we see Jesus coming to do is exactly what the first Adam was supposed to do, namely obey. He was supposed to fall under God's authority and do what he told him to do, and Jesus did that for us. And so you belong to one of those men. You, by nature, are united to Adam. We are born into our sinful nature. You ever try to tell a kid no? Guys, do we like kids that are in the room with us? Do you like hearing the word no? Pfft, no. Nobody likes the word no. Adults, we don't even like the word no. In those very earliest of stages, we see our little vipers in diapers hating the word no. It shows us that that is our representative, but the good news is another one has come. Another one has come to represent us. Jesus, the God-man, the fully God, the fully man, redeemer of humanity. And so we fall under one of their heads, and the way it comes is by believing. Does it say by cleaning up your act you're in Christ? Does it say, you know, through faithful church participation? No, it says by believing you are in Christ. Who you are depends on whose you are. We uh, recently purchased our house. We, we, we bought our house when we came to Albuquerque last year. And if you've ever been through the house, you know, house purchasing process, it, it's quite the fiasco. But we've all been sold this bill of lies, I believe, but it, it really rings true that everything falls on your FICO score, right? It's all about your credit score. And so me in my type A compulsion type, I began probably six or 12 months before I knew we were going to be coming to Albuquerque to purchase a home. 
getting the FICO score up, right? You, you've, it's like jumping through hoops. You've got to have like this set amount of credit cards open with the uh, perfect balance, not too much, not too little. You have to obviously pay everything on time. Can't have any dings on your record, you know, no medical records, no, no faults. You have to be pretty much blameless at the altar of FICO in order to get a home in our country. Just, it's just the way it works. Well, I often boasted about my FICO score, and Heather often humbled me in that, saying, hey, we did this together. Like, you didn't just build your own FICO score. This is our FICO score. But, but here's, here's the connection I want to make. Building our identity is a constant attempt to build up our FICO score. Like, God is the great mortgage lender, and if our FICO score gets good enough, perhaps he would let us into his house. Here's the good news of, of, of Jesus he gives you his FICO score. You get the FICO score that Jesus earned for you. And so his worth, his FICO standing is the only one will, that, that will upstand God, the mortgage lender, in, in the illustration. I realize it fails at some point. But, 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 but here, here, here it is. God's house coming into his kingdom, belonging to him, requires the perfect FICO score. And you will never build that on your own. You simply will not. You will get dings. You will miss a payment. But Christ's FICO score stands up on your behalf. Believing in Christ is belonging to Christ. Let's look thirdly at how who you are is a gift from God. I believe that there is a great misunderstanding in Christianity today, particularly in the Christianity, the flavor of Christianity in our land, in, in Western American culture. And the great misunderstanding is this, that yes, Adam, I believe Jesus died and then he rose and then he did all those wonderful things you're saying, but I don't believe that that's enough. In other words, I think that there's a message coming even from pulpits today God forbid, that sounds a lot like this. Look what Jesus did for you. Now, what are you going to do for him? You know, I think this, there's this, this low-level guilt, this, this veneer that hovers over the church and over Christians just like you that says, Jesus offers you new life. Now, go and prove that you're worthy of it. And I think that that's a perversion of, of the gospel. I think that if you live your life in a way to prove your value or worth to God, you will be crushed. And I think that's the truth because you will fail. That ultimately, that if you think the Christian life is one of trying to prove your value, your worth to God, you will be crushed. The free grace of the gospel says this, Jesus offers you new life and you will never be worthy of it. Now go and give your life away to tell others about that. Do you hear that today, Christian? You will never be worthy of, Christ, of what Christ has done for you. Never. You will never prove your worth. God proved it for you by sending Christ to die in your behalf. That's all the value that you need. That's all the validation and the acceptance and the worth and the embrace of a good God that you need. If you think your life has already been approved and it's already been validated as a free gift from God, that'll change you forever. Christians, if we begin to grasp this message, verse 2, that grace and peace come from God, not from us, 
it can change everything about us. In fact, the banner flying over Ephesians, even the way it's put, at least in my Bible, it's as though to say, grace comes from God and the grace is found in peace with God. That's what's flying over this letter for us today and as we look at the rest of it. God's love for you is no greater on your best day and it's no worse on your worst day. I mean, do you believe that? Like, I mean, I don't, am I the only one that thinks on a bad day God loves me less? Am I the only one that thinks, wow, I had a pretty good today, day today, God. You must be really focusing on me. I, I don't think I'm the only one that, that has that inclination. But the gospel tells us his love for us never changes. That on our best days and on our worst days, God's love is steadfast for his people. This is the all-caps headliner of Ephesians. Peace with God, and it comes free by grace. So who do you think you are? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps you are here. I'm glad you're here, first off. Let me, let me open that up. I'm glad you're here and that you're here considering the claims of, of Jesus because that's what, that's what we're here to talk about. But if you're here today as an unbeliever, you have been answering that question of who you think you are. You have. Maybe today's some of the things that I opened the sermon with maybe triggered some things in you. That you have been building an identity your entire life from the, the earliest of stages of who you are. How you fit into the grand scheme of this world. Well, the opening verses of Ephesians gives you an idea of who you certainly could be. But it also makes no qualms about it that if you're not in Christ, this is not you. And so I want to both challenge and invite you to something. Today I want you to challenge you with asking that hard question of who am I really? And who would Christ have me to be? And I want to invite you to consider what the text is asking you to do. What is the prerequisite to be called a saint? It's belief. To believe in Christ and everything that he says. Consider that an invitation. And, and will you also consider this an invitation that perhaps, perhaps this is your first time at Mosaic and maybe some of this is new and some of the things we do are new and certainly the faces are new. Will you commit to coming back and hearing more about this? Because there's so much more. We are, we are reading the salutation of the letter. We are about to go really deep. And so I would invite you to come back. If you're here today and you're a believer, that is you've professed faith in Christ, you've been baptized, you belong to him, I assume that's the, by and large the majority of us here today, you too have been answering that question. Who am I? Who do I think I am? And you know the right answer to the question. What, what I've told you today has not necessarily been brand new information to you, but you must admit you're inclined to answer that question differently. The way we pragmatically live our lives, building our identity on something else, is what God's calling us away from. It's to stop building our identity on anything outside of Christ. And so consider that a challenge and an invitation to us. I believe Ephesians has a lot to offer us I'm really excited to open it up for us. And so let's pray that God would change us through both the reading and the preaching of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, 
We're barely scratching the surface on this letter that you have, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, guided the Apostle Paul to write for us. And Lord, I, I feel the weight that you're going you're gonna to do a mighty work in our hearts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do just that, that you would make known to us the riches that are found in Christ. And, and perhaps if there's even anyone here today that, that has not tasted or, or, or seen those riches, that you, would, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. And Lord, for, for those of us who have tasted and seen it, Lord, we often still run to rubbish and trash to build our identity. Lord, I pray that you would that you would help us to re-examine our hearts and that we too would profess faith in Christ and that we would know that we belong to him and that in him we're declared saints. We ask all these things in the name of your son and our savior Jesus. Amen.